0: HVAC 360, episode number 28, my interview with Howard
1: McHugh.
0: Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of HVAC 360. I'm your host, Matt Nelson. This week I t- get to talk to uh, Howard McHugh, who is the president of Building Smart Software. Uh, Howie is a, a great writer that I've enjoyed reading. If you haven't had a chance to see his work, uh, pick up an, a copy of Engineered Systems magazine and take a look at it. He's, uh, he's right in the back. One of the things I, I do every time I get the magazine, I'll flip to the back, I'll read that, uh, his article first. There's not a lot of articles that really... You know, talk to you uh, as you know, talk to you on his level. It's it's very kind of it's a real special uh, type of writing style, and I I really uh, I really enjoy quite a bit. So it was really a great honor and privilege to be able to get him on the show, and uh, I won't uh, delay this any further. But uh, let's cut right to the tape. All right, today we're going to be talking with. Howard McHugh, uh, president of Building Smart Software. Um, how are you doing this morning, Howie?
1: Great, thank
0: you. So, you know, I've, I've followed you for you know, quite some time. People who are in the industry and who have read uh, magazines like uh, Engineered Systems uh, may be familiar with um, Howie uh, just from, from your writing. Um, so it, I, w- I guess my first question is, what, you know, like, what is your background? Where do you come from?
1: Well, uh, the interesting thing is that I um, didn't really start out to be an engineer. And I, I talk about this in a book I wrote on managing people in the HVAC industry. I, um, When I got out of high school, I didn't want to go on to college. I took a one-year drafting course because um, I wanted to be an artist. And I knew that if I took drafting, at least I'd have a job and make some money because most artists have way on tables and uh, in the decision to get into engineering the it was a one year course uh, and the uh, school offered it, it, it with um, the assurance that I'd be able to get a job based on the economy at the time <clears throat> and um, two of the interesting offers. Uh, one was in engineering in Boston. The other one was in a construction company, uh, actually a roofing company in the next town over. And um, what it interested me at 18 years old was to be in Boston. So my whole decision on where I was going to work was based on working in Boston, It just happened to be an engineering firm. And so I was brought in as a trainee uh, drafts person. But I really learned to really like the business or love the business, and had some great mentors um, along the way um, that just kept me further interested and curious about the the building industry.
0: So who who so that's I, kind
1: of how I got into it.
0: <clears throat> so who would, who would you say influenced you the most in in, in your uh, in in your career?
1: Well, initially, and in, was. Um, This fellow, Jim McGrath, who hired me uh, uh, to join Shushanian Engineering, and then Ed Shushanian himself was a huge uh, influence. I always felt as a boss he had more loyalty in the employees than the employees had in him. And I was one of them because I worked there twice and left twice both times to continue to learn. And I think that bothered Ed that he was being a good boss about it. But I was really like the right-hand man to this fellow, Hank gagget for the first eight years, and and then working, returning, working with him. I was the engineering manager, and he was the vice president. He was a huge influence. And then when they moved into the construction side, this fellow Tony Shaker taught me an awful lot about construction and business in general. Uh, so those are probably the four people. I I could certainly list probably another fifty that have had influence. In my career, but those are the ones that I think of that really got me going in the right direction and, and had an interest in what I was doing.
0: Now, you haven't just been, you know, doing engineering your whole whole kind of whole career. I guess how how would you describe your career if somebody asked you, yeah, what you what you've did and where where have you been?
1: Well, interestingly, uh, Richard Tethui, who is on this whole house, always likes. Uh, me that I'm still trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up because my first 20 years was in the consultant side and I started out as a trainee draftsman and worked my way up to being manager engineering, having gone to school at night years later to um, pick up the engineering. I knew I really needed it. Um, But then I went uh, to a construction firm and a uh, mechanical contract in particular and got involved with design-build and, and then became vice president of engineering and estimating. And and I loved that process, and I did that for nine years and thought there's got to be even more to this, so I went to a construction management firm, which was W.A. Berry, and then from there I um, kind of got back into being uh, a consultant doing um, uh, troubleshooting and commissioning and uh, energy work. So it, my broad experience is um, that I learned to be a design engineer as well as a construction person and estimator and project manager. The other thing, when I was with a mechanical contractor, which was Balco in Boston, they had a, a second company that was operation and maintenance, where they were an outsourced firm managing about 24 million square feet of building. And I had the opportunity to be in charge of their technical services and uh, it was kind of quality control. So I learned an awful lot about operation of buildings and maintenance management. Um, so that was that kind of rounded off. So I've, I've done design, construction, and operation maintenance in the process. I, I don't know how you put a title to that as far as what I do. Uh, people still ask me, uh, in fact, one of my bosses. At one place, um, after two years, said to me, "I still don't understand what you do," which was kind of funny because I was basically bringing in about two million dollars worth of consultant services, and because they were strictly with the owners, you know, we were getting paid in a timely manner, and which was foreign to, to him as a consultant. Usually, they go through architects and get paid 120 days later. <clears throat>
0: Wow, Um, you know, and I think that you know part of part of the thing that uh, interests me most about uh, your career is just kind of the diversity and and the fact that you know a lot of people would you know would be an engineer would get stuck in engineering, um, you know, and they really wouldn't necessarily grow. And I think that the perspective that that you gained, uh, you know, going to the contractor, you know, understanding the maintenance portion of it, um, you you know, really kind of you know. it's it's almost like there should be an apprenticeship for HVAC and engineers to understand. Okay, what what are the other you know facets of engineering? What do, what do they have to deal with? So when you get back to the drafting board, you really understand, uh, you know, and put together a, a design that really you know kind of uh, meets you know all the needs.
1: Yeah, exactly. And and actually, I write about that in my um, tomorrow's environment column, which. I just, this uh, month, uh, finishing up 20 years of writing that, and I always tell people, it's sort of my Andy Rooney, what's right and wrong with the building industry. I really touch on a variety of topics over the years, from design to construction to project management to individual professional development. And uh, I've had people contact me and uh, ask me, uh, you know, how can they uh, grow in the business and that. And, And I really... I'm not really a, strong on design engineers who um, will make a life uh, or a career just doing design engineering. I think there's a real flaw in that, and that's why commissioning is um, so important these days. Because engineers j- seem to just design the jobs, and they move on to the next job, and. Um, as a result, they're not proactive in the construction phase. And, and I actually had one engineer who moved into my group when I was doing the commissioning say to me after four, ye- four months, and, and this was a graduate engineer with a registration and 12 years of experience, and he said, You know, I don't know if any of my jobs ever work. And he was saying that because he was out commissioning and troubleshooting, and it really opened his eyes. To, you just don't draw this and then hit the switch and everything's fine, and and that's really lacking in the engineering side. And I really do believe engineers, um, you know, should get out and change jobs, work for a construction company, and uh, learn that side of the business. And I could go I could go on for an hour about that, but I won't. But it's it's um, it's something that I've written about and feel that. Engineers really need to get out of the office and um, communicate with the builders and listen to them because I've always said it. You know, if, I've, if I had 20 years of designing an HVAC system, I could probably design the perfect piping system. And even so, I feel that way. If I have, I'm working hand-in-hand with a contractor who's been doing this for 20 years, i got to believe they can make it better. So no matter how good... I think my design is. It can be better if you work in partnership with uh, contractors and listen to them, as well as have them listen to you.
0: Now, uh, you now, just talking about engineering here for a little bit. What were what were some of the favorite projects that, that you had um, when you were when you were designing?
1: Well, I, I've had the uh, benefit of a lot of favorite projects. Uh, some people say. Uh, Everybody gets their 15 minutes of fame. I think Andy Warhol's mentioned that. I've had more than my 15 minutes of fame because um, I one of the first major projects that I really enjoyed and was kind of guilty until proven innocent was the Leahy Clinic Project in Burlington, Mass., uh, which uh, turned out to be a really great job, but due to a lot of issues from the construction side, um, that was a challenge. Um I did the Boston Floating Hospital project, which was fun and interesting, and I created the uh, dual, duct, uh, uh, double duct dual fan concept, which is I got in the ASHRAE guide in the 1984 handbook. So that was kind of fun and unique. I I did the State Transportation Building in Boston, which is about a million square feet, and that made Ripley's believe it or not, because it had no boiler plant. It was. Um, had thermal storage and operated on the heat recovery uh, taken out of the interior space and put to the exterior to heat the building in the winter. And then as an office building, it would ordinarily around here be, uh, you'd estimate 400 square feet per ton, or in this case uh, 2,000 tons of cooling. The building actually... On a peak day, was running around uh, twelve hundred. No, actually, no. It was designed for twelve hundred. It was actually running at six hundred tons with the thermal storage doing the rest. So that was uh, phenomenal, and it was fun and and it was successful because the facility people uh, bought into it. Uh, Two other projects um, was the Pentagon, where I was involved with commissioning uh, the Pentagon renovation and uh, got involved with. Um, helping to uh, solicit design-build bids based on how I saw design-build for Wedge 2 through 5. So that was a lot of fun to actually put this $3 billion project out to design-builders. And then in Ohio, I did a job at St. Augustine Manor in Cleveland, Ohio that was just really cool because we uh, had a tremendous impact on the improvements of it while it was fully occupied. And I, I know the, um, Larry Murtaugh who headed up Catholic Charities Facility Group was really pleased with it and it won an Ashray Regional Energy Award, uh, uh, as part of the success of that project. So I've, so I, I've had some really, uh, great success with some real name brand projects and, um, not many engineers get to do one. Never mind some of the ones I've done.
0: Now, you've 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 uh, kind of alluded to that you've been kind of on the management side of engineering. Um, wh- how do you see uh, the management of engineering? Uh, you know, I guess, I guess in general.
1: <clears throat> well, I, I think it's somewhat mediocre at best. Managing people, and I I wrote this book on it because um, I was asked to. But I, it you really have to uh, work hard to manage the process and really be a coach, just and think of the uh, engineering as the team out on the field. And without getting into all the details of it, I don't see many managers doing that to the level they really should. The other part is, uh, I think project managers. or management from a consultant firm when they're um, doing a job, usually uh, they're working for an architect and whoever has the best communication skills, or maybe they're in charge of HVAC and has the most exposure, they automatically become the project manager. And I learned from working with contractors that you you really have to uh, maintain meeting minutes, due dates, assignments, and so forth. And, uh, in the engineering side, project management is sort of, oh, yeah, we can do that, too, and you know you take care of it, and it's not done really well, right down to the point where I have a rule that's uh, called the 24-hour rule, that when you go to a meeting, you I don't want you to even come back to the office until you have your meeting minutes done, uh, because if you come back to the office, you get sidetracked, two, three days go by, or even a week, and you've missed the opportunity to make sure that everybody knows exactly what they're supposed to do, what they talked about, what they agreed on. And so when you go to the next meeting, no one has the excuse, oh, I didn't see the meeting minutes till today or whatever. Uh, so there's a whole uh, task of project management and management in general and engineering that I, I don't think uh, really exists in most uh, firms that. It's, it's a mediocre at best.
0: Now, do you think that's because of the uh, the size of the firms, or is it is it just the lack of uh, you know the lack of knowledge or understanding that hey, that's something that that we should be good at?
1: Uh, it's the lack of knowledge and lack of training. Um, when I was with the construction firm, I remember the vice president saying to me, "On we were doing a design build project and." He said, you know, I don't really care if this works or not. That's your problem. And he wasn't being sarcastic. It was just that he was telling me, you know, my role is the design part. His role is to get it done on time and in budget. And that was his focus. And he was just reminding me, not that he had to, but he was reminding me that the engineering part is a team. That's your responsibility. But by working with the construction, uh, I, I learned a lot about what good project management Entails, and not that they all are really good at their own jobs doing that. Uh, I did learn that, and I don't believe I would have learned that in an engineering firm.
0: So, moving on to the the kind of the contracting, design, build kind of side of things, i what what do you think most engineers? Uh, what are the, some of the misconceptions people have about uh, uh, contractors?
1: Well, I think. My feeling is most design engineers, first of all, don't appreciate their responsibility on the job because the I think it's the AIA documents say that you get 80% of your fee in the design phase, and if you manage it correctly, you get the other 20% in the construction. So if it takes six months to design something, you get 80% of your fee, but it may take 18 months to build it, and if you are managing money, at best, you only have twenty percent of your fee to cover the next eighteen months, so you're in a reactive mode, and and um, so you know that's that's an important piece of the the pie, and and I don't think engineers see that. They just assume that they've done their job, and then it comes down to the contractor just hasn't done their job, and that isn't always the case. And it goes back to that engineer saying, I, I don't know if any of my projects ever work because. He wasn't out in the field proactively working to uh, assist in making sure the thing starts up smoothly and on time and in budget and so forth. Uh, and so they, the, I think most engineers, uh, or many engineers I'll say, don't trust the contractor. And on projects that uh, a repeat business. You know, like college, university, healthcare, the uh, the contract isn't there to make a living and to get more repeat business. They're no different than the engineer looking for repeat business. Uh, there is an element of design, bid, build that you do a super job, you're still not going to get the next job unless you're low price. And that's a kind of a different breed of contract you're dealing with. But if you're working with a contractor with a good reputation, uh, you, you, you can trust them uh, And at the same time, I think the contractors feel just the same way towards the engineer. They don't have a high regard for the engineer, maybe quite often, uh, because neither one of them are working together well. With the design build, I had the benefit of working for this firm and uh, being put in charge of um, estimating as well as engineering. And I introduced uh, back in the late 80s what I guess you'd call integrated project delivery now, but we would do infrastructure projects and when we would put together a design build pro- proposal for say a chiller plant expansion we didn't have a blank check to just spend lots of time in engineering to get it well documented in fact we didn't even have the job we'd have to sc- so we'd have to scope something out and i'd get the engineer the estimator the project manager we figured who would be on the job and even maybe the lead pipe fitter cuz we were a mechanical contractor and we'd do team design and team estimating in a uh, conference room, and we could be done in uh, an hour or two hours. And I actually, on one occasion, and it was the St. Augustine manor project in Cleveland, I, because the uh, owner w- was in charge of facilities, but he was not an engineer. He made it clear to me he had a history major for uh, education. What I did was I had someone videotape our estimating exercise as we designed it and estimated this project. And as part of my presentation to the client, we had this um, video showing how it all came together. And it really helped uh, the client realize, you know, we just weren't throwing numbers. They were talking through, all right, let's see if we dig this hole, we got to add uh, safing and so that's uh, $2,000 and we do this, that's 5000 and you could hear them putting the design together verbally and then putting it to paper and so there was a, a much better understanding that we just didn't make this number of. This was put together by uh, several people with a variety of experience and drawn together and can to give one price. Now that usually doesn't happen With construction management or design bid build, Um, but it can happen in design build, and it can can certainly happen in the latest project delivery is integrated project delivery, uh, which is just enhanced design build.
0: So, I guess you know one of one of the things that I I can ask you just as as far as um, you know, get your opinion on this. Who's, who's doing better engineers learning how to design well uh, doing energy efficient buildings or the building uh, facility managers knowing how to maintain um, these uh, complex systems for their maximum efficiency
1: i I personally think it's the facility people because they have to make it work um, the engineers believe it works but even there one of the things engineers don't have is uh, internal funding for research. Most innovative designs come from uh, equipment manufacturers who have their own uh, in-house research to come up with a better mousetrap each time. And so then the sales vendors call on the engineers and introduce them to this concept or that concept. So the engineers are drawing from equipment manufacturers for um, new ideas more energy efficient ideas but in the end it's the owner who's left with the um, the installation and they have to make it work and even right now i'm doing a project uh, working through a law firm that is representing the engineers because they uh... did a uh, uh... sort of a new HVAC system and, it, and they, they have some problems with it and quite honestly i think it started with the engineer going on the um, equipment manufacturer for all the ideas. And then they didn't really understand the system enough, but designed it. And um, from there, they built it. And, And now the owner's stuck with it. And so the owner has to make sure it works right.
0: So, obviously, I, I guess, give me your opinions, and obviously this is kind of a loaded question for you, but give me your opinions on on the design-build process.
1: Well, there's good design-build and bad design-build. A lot of uh, uh, contractors will say they do design-build, and they'll buy the services of an engineer for limited services and uh, put it together uh, to propose something. And then, after that, the engineer may not even participate in in the project and then as and I've seen it this happen is then it goes into construction, and uh for whatever reason, they're trying to cut corners, and the contractor makes changes that the engineer never knew about that is to me is not design build design build is getting everybody in the same room and do as I said before team estimating and team design. And and, uh, that's actually how integrated project delivery is supposed to occur. When I um, was involved with the Pentagon and they were asking me, um, how do we put out design builds of wedge two through five? And I said, what you have to do is um, not uh, solicit bids from the contractor who's going to carry the evil design team or solicit. Uh, proposals from the design team who's going to carry the evil contractor. What you have to do is put out a, a request for proposal that the team comes together, they've worked together, and that they're going to uh, create the scope together. And and um, everybody has ownership into that. and And so that's my approach to design-build. But I also try to make a design-build operate and maintain <clears throat> meaning from what I've learned from even my own quality control role at uh, an outsource firm is that you can put together your operation and maintenance budget in the conceptual phase uh, and you can begin the training of operations people in that phase by having them give you their input. Code. Cause quite often, facility people will tell you, well, we don't operate that way, so you know, we shut the system down at 9 o'clock at night or whatever, and so often there isn't that operation maintenance piece, which is really the sort of, the, you see the tip of the iceberg in these photos where um, that's the, the tip of the iceberg is the design and construction, but 75 or 80 percent of that iceberg is below the water, and that's really the operation and maintenance role to keep this um uh, afloat for years to come, and so design-build bid, design build should really be design-build, operation, and maintenance, and if you do that and work together and, and consensus rules, to me, there's really little to no risk because you've got all the right parties working together from the beginning.
0: Now, now moving on to commissioning, um, what is, I, I guess, you know, the I heard you have an analogy for commissioning and testing, adjusting, and balancing or tab. What What is that analogy?
1: Well, first of all, commissioning, people will say to me, how do you sell commissioning? And I say, well, I don't sell commissioning because if you go out and pick your optimum design team and your optimum construction firm, and then you say to me, all right, I want you to commission and how do I tell them, oh, sure, for $150,000, i will make it work because... You already picked people you believe in, Uh, but the nature of the business is that uh, these teams aren't working. Some work pretty good, but still don't work uh, as an integrated team. And so the commissioning person is that third party to kind of make sure that you pull, nothing falls through the cracks. Not not that that will solve everything, because I've seen jobs that are commissioned and they really didn't do a great job at it. But the other part of it is, and, and I always tell people that you got to also include the testing, adjusting, and balancing. And I took the NEBS test back in '93 when I went, worked with a mechanical contractor. And, um, I really learned a lot about what balances should do. And in each of the major organizations, have um, their own how-to book. But the balances aren't allowed to apply that because they're working under the mechanical contract, and quite often they're a commodity. And they're also used to, in at least the last 40 years, of showing up near the end of the job, tuning it up and running it. And that isn't how they're supposed to be doing balancing. Without getting into that detail, my point is, when I try to explain to someone who wants to hire me for commissioning, Really, points that they also hire me as the balancer, where I'll sub it out to a pre-qualified balancer. And the analogy is, if you go out and buy a car, and you ask me to commission it, I'm going to make sure the electric door package works, the CD package works. But as far as the performance of it, on the window sticker it may say you're going to get 32 miles per gallon. I tell them. I can commission this at 18 miles per gallon. I can commission it at 32 miles per gallon. It's the balancer who really sets up the flows and the pressures so that you achieve the maximum performance. And with energy conservation being so important, and and LEED doesn't address this either, but uh, you have these operating budgets or energy simulations that says you're going to use 70,000 BTUs per square foot per year. But then you don't invest in having someone tune it up to the right flows. You'll get it commissioned and you'll know that on this sequence this valve did open when it was supposed to and this van did shut down when it was supposed to. But you don't get someone setting up the flows to fine-tune it so that you really do hit 70,000 BTUs per square foot per year. And When I did the State Transportation Building back in the 70s, that number actually was an, an average number of operation energy budget for a, a new building, office building in, in the 70s, at 70,000 BTUs per square foot per year. I designed that for 52,000 BTUs per square foot per year based on thermal storage and this other stuff. In the end, the owner and the facility people, through their commitment to the project and through us, commissioning and really making sure the balancing was done, they ran that building at 42 to 45,000 BTUs per square foot per year and have done that, to the best of my knowledge, for the, the next 20 years that they had it. And so my point is that the balancing should be an integral part of the commissioning if you're going to do it. And I, I'm pretty adamant, if I'm going to be involved with commissioning, I want the balance to work for me or work for the construction manager but under my supervision. And yes, it's going to cost you more, but you're already paying for half the balancing, and you're only going to get half the job. For maybe fifty cents a square foot more, you're going to get the thing running on all eight cylinders, um, and it's going to be running efficiently. Now, do you so,
0: get, do you correct. get sorry do you, do you get any like pushback from uh, you know balancing firms saying hey you know what mm-hmm. you know I, I want to be I want to be the prime here you know why why should why should the commissioning agent would be the one to hire the tab. I mean, is there some, some conflict that you've you run into?
1: I don't really get any pushback. Most balances really aren't very proactive. They're just comfortable working for um, the mechanical contractors that they work for. Even the the three major organizations, I tried to push this idea of elevating their Role and all the, and they seem to think they're doing it anyways. And I I have an article, I think, coming out in Engineered System in January uh, talking about third party uh, tab consulting. And, you know, the time has come. Because I'm surprised that the balances seem to be pretty comfortable with how they're doing the job and, and they don't want to upset the mechanical contractors because then they won't get the work. But in the end, it's the only you're trying to. Uh, peas. And so I push for that. And, and if a balancer can work, I'll say, with me as part of the third party, they're fine with that. And they, they know they're going to get more money because there's more scope to it, to the balancing that way. But I'm just surprised. Um, I gave a talk a couple of months ago at Ashray in the local chapter about this concept, and one of the engineers afterwards said, that was really great, but I ain't going to happen. And I, I said to him, well, why not? You're the one that runs, the, writes the balancing spec. You're the one talking to the owner. Why don't you step up and say, look, I want the balancing separate. And and uh, it's actually a great business opportunity for engineering sir, uh, firms that who are really right now, seems like everybody and their brother is getting into commissioning, so why not also get into uh, air and water balancing, because for me, it really assures me that the commissioning will be done right, because I'm controlling the balancing as well, and I know that we'll get everything done together as a team, whereas it doesn't really happen all that often the other way around.
0: Now, now tab you say TAB Consulting. Um, you don't say tab contracting. Is that is is that just a, a choice of words, or is there an intentional you know difference there?
1: Well, because I haven't been able to convince any tab firm. My, my feeling is it could be a tab firm that sets up a company of one, maybe limited liability company that uh, has a, a design engineer who has the role of being third party tab person, and then they would. Um, bring on the tab firm that their the parent company or that maybe they'd still have to go out and solicit bids from three pre-qualified tab firms. Uh, that's one possibility. The other thing is to have the, uh, an engineering firm either do it in-house offering the tab services like they're offering commissioning or somebody just goes out and sets up a commissioning and tab uh, business on their own. Um, i You know, I plan to talk to a few consultant firms about that possibility as well. Uh, So you you could get it done in a a variety of ways, but the bottom line is if you can get the balance to do-the-job per their books, uh, then you're going to get a better job, and and then the client is going to be satisfied with that, whereas as a rule, they quite often will have complaints
0: so you're looking for this this tab this third party tab consultant to be more of a uh, you know project management um, you know kind of person rather than a um, an actual you know balancer you know twisting dials and, and 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 taking pressures and things like that.
1: Yeah, and, and the idea first came to me when I worked for the design build firm, and I took the um, the NED the National Environmental Balancing Bureau test, and it was a like a four- or five-hour written test, and if you pass it, then you did the field test. And the president of the design bill firm didn't want to get into the balancing. We just wanted to understand what they really were supposed to be doing so we could make sure that they would do it right. And so I took the course, and it really opened my eyes to what they're supposed to do long before they show up on the job with their tools. They're supposed to sit down and create system flow diagrams and note every place where they're going to take readings and and I require that as a shop drawing submittal <clears throat> and that way when the balancer gets out on the job site and it seems to make you know, real sense to me that you go out on the job site and you're taking readings now if you're getting something dramatically different then you would stop and say well wait a minute what's wrong here is there a damper closed downstream or whatever and it, they don't have to solve it they can just documented and on like a corrective action log and then continue on and and then get those things corrected but if you show up to start doing balancing and you're just looking at drawings and maybe you looked at it before but you didn't write anything down if you get some readings that don't make sense you're less apt to realize that because quite often the balances for example don't have the equipment brochures or submittals out there are the fan curve or the pump curve and if you don't and um, something isn't making sense because if you plot it on the fan curve it wouldn't show up in the right place or anywhere on the fan curve then it there's some problems here but if you haven't done your homework ahead of time how good can you do a balancing job
0: So. Uh... Talking a little bit more about your your writing i guess when when did that start and and you know what what got you interested in it
1: uh it well I, say I started out to be an artist, and uh, interestingly, when I got my draft notice, I took the test and found out I was colorblind so that kind of killed that so i um went on to um, doing engineering and I worked for an, uh, a firm where I had gone there to learn to do industrial work, sewage treatment and things like that, because I was just curious. Up to that point, I had been doing hospitals and research facilities, and I really wanted to diversify my experience. Well, at at this um, firm, they would pay you a whopping $250 if you got something published, and I think it was my creative genes that got me thinking, because I did this job in, in, I think it was 75, Five, you know, around 1975, and I had the idea of energy conservation through value engineering. And what I did was I designed this school job, HVAC, and I never shared with the architect or anyone what I was doing from an energy conservation standpoint. But, you know, energy conservation was a huge issue once the oil embargo took uh, place and so forth. But I used to work part-time for a sheet metal shop, and I learned about how design engineers, if you just go by your ductilator and size stuff and you don't think about the sheet metal waste, they can add to the job and nothing is benefited. So I really did value engineering as I designed the project, and I'd take what I saved, uh, at least in my mind, and introduce the energy wheel and so forth, and that got me going because I uh, then wrote an article uh, on it, and I got it published. And um, that kind of filled the void as far as creativity. And, and then I, from 76 on, I think I wrote at least one article every year in one magazine or another. And, I, and since then, I've had pretty much anyone who worked with me in the groups I've been responsible for Get published. Also, I turn it into like a term paper that, at the end of the job, you're really the authority on that job. And I, like myself, I don't write about psychometrics and stuff like that. I'd probably fall asleep trying to do it. I write about case studies and share the the ideas, what works and don't work. And I've been doing that ever since. But along the way, engineered systems approached me because I wrote a few articles in there, and that's when they asked me about writing my monthly column which the first one goes back to january 1991 and so it's just become part of my learning process because when you go to put things down on paper quite often other things occur you say oh that's why that worked Uh, whereas if you just keep it up in your head you're not really dotting the i's crossing the t's and So I find writing is really a way for me to continue to learn, and I get other people to do the same thing. And the byproduct is people get to know who you are, and I always say a lot of people think you're smarter because you got published, but all you did was take the time to write about something, particularly a job that you're doing that you're really the authority on. And, And you're writing to an industry, you're not that understands the the lingo of, uh, whereas you're not trying to write it to a bunch of English teachers or doctors who would say, well, that that doesn't make any sense. It's not written uh, correctly and so forth. So I've been doing that and I continue to do it. And um, some of my writing I post on my website. And I'm actually writing a book now. I sell chapter by chapter on my website. I'm kind of behind on that because I've just been so busy, but I, I really enjoy doing that and sharing with others who want to read it because I've had a lot of emails over the years from people who read my column and so forth and, uh, and said, boy, that, that was good advice or whatever.
0: So now you, you made the stretch into software, software development. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how did that come about?
1: Um, it was actually my son who, um, uh, when he got out of college and he, um, uh, he got Microsoft certified and, and, uh, with my creative ideas, I was, um, I'd say to him, uh, you know, what if we did this electronically? And, and, um, he could pretty much do anything. He was really, um, he could sit down and read a book and learn everything you need to know about computers, which a lot of, uh, IT people are self-taught. And he's the one that came up with the idea. He said, um, you know, I, I I can program anything. And he wasn't boasting. His point was that he went on was, but really what I'm doing is I'm programming your experience. And I thought that was pretty cool. And and he was the one that came up with the name Building Smart Software because my thinking was your building uh, uh, was the building itself and you had software, but his uh, look at it was, well, no, you're building smart software, meaning you're creating smart software. And So with the commissioning process, there's really no industry standard on how to write a functional performance test, which is really the heart of commissioning. That's the document that says, here, show me how this sequence works. All the different... um, Commissioning organizations, and there's a lot of them, um, will say, yes, you need a commissioning spec, and here's the checklist, and so forth. But I had this idea for writing a functional performance test based on how I was taught to design, where you started with a system flow diagram. It doesn't matter whether the unit's 20,000 CFM or 24,000. How does it work? So you do a flow diagram and you'd write the sequence. And as you do it, you say, "Oh, okay, I got to put a damper here. I got to put a temperature sensor here." So the commissioning three software that was built uh, is actually based on Visio, uh, which is a Microsoft product, and it's a great software for flow diagrams. So that's kind of the platform. And then you just drag and click the different components and and then there's a task part to assign what's it doing for a reaction is it on off modulating so forth So I basically took how you're designing it and had it into a program and from there i turned around and I sold it um, out there because um, it was I felt it was needed but I say I'm not aware of any software yet that helps you write the functional performance. so in the end, A commissioning engineer might have a three-page functional performance sheet, and another one for the same job could have 20 pages. And um, with this, it's uh, a format that's standard that you can use, and each of the people in the group uh, follow that process, so there's a quality control to what you're doing, too, because it's very standardized.
0: Um, now, I guess what what um, what's any new ventures for two thousand and twelve for you?
1: Yeah, I got a really cool idea because I'm um, I'm on this uh, hospital associated infection organization. It's a nonprofit organization where the person who started it, uh, his son, went into the hospital for an operation, and he was in his twenties and. I don't know the full story, but anyways, he got a, acquired an infection and died. And I, from that, he tried has tried to uh, raise awareness to hospital-acquired infection. And so I got involved with it, and I learned, even though I've got years and years of designing hospitals, that almost 100,000 people die from infections they get from the hospital. So I've been on this steering committee and I've been working with this uh, Dr. Taylor who has donated her time to this venture too and this is some like 70, 70 people from around the country and some really nationally known uh, for infection control and so forth so it's a great continuing learning process but I came up with the idea of commissioning of infection control and I actually am writing about that I think it's in like February and tomorrow's environment column, to get the word out as far as, you know, we commissioning started in the HVAC industry, I'll say in the 80s, uh, through ASHRAE. Then we got into commissioning electric systems and plumbing and so forth, and then we got into commissioning building envelope. And so I've come up with this idea of commissioning of infection control, which is really a third-party assessment of how infection control is being taken care of. And um, so I'm working with this uh, Dr. Taylor who has just opened a business, Taylor Healthcare Commissioning, and the tagline is physician-led consulting. And we hope to expand the commissioning process in the healthcare side to infection control. We've also been approached by a design builder who creates, uh, builds modular healthcare facilities and one of the things we're talking about is wouldn't it be really neat if you could uh, design build a patient module just like on the highway you might see a home, a mobile home being brought in a couple of sections of place on a site if you bought say a hundred of these patient rooms and you brought them to the site and you slid them in almost like shoe boxes and I know that's making it really simple but if you Before it left the factory, it was certified from a mechanical, electric, and infection control approach. And then once you get it there, you do a second commissioning to be able to say to the client here, this uh, area of the building has been commissioned from both mechanical, electric, and also for infection control. The other part of that venture is that I want to apply uh, touch screen capabilities which has finally caught on Um, and if you can think about that as far as if you came into a patient room and you just hit I'll say apps for housekeeping everything you're supposed to do for the housekeeping is right there and you just check it off you hit the yes yes buttons on what you did and didn't do and that feeds back to uh, some I'll say, Excel file, but you're monitoring and measuring performance. And then, of course, you, can, you need to go out and make sure they just didn't hit compliance with every one of the categories. You spot check it just like you'd spot check someone doing a preventive maintenance work on So So in the grand scheme for this year, in addition to doing uh, business development and troubleshooting and all the things I do, I'm really going to put a a big effort into this commissioning of infection control with uh, Dr. Taylor and also work on the touch screen piece. My daughter, Amanda, who writes in engineering systems, works for a a firm that is capable, capable of creating those touch screen applications for maintenance and also we could create one for infection control. So I think it'd be really fun this year doing that and I think there's a real need for it that we can um, really help clients uh, enhance uh, in the healthcare side their performance relative to infection control because it's not only assessing a third party and then doing some training and recommendations, it's that ongoing monitoring and measuring uh, capability and today versus Ten years ago, everybody's used to these little handheld devices. and um, So I I don't think it's a stretch to get people to just uh, use those in a hospital. And if they're not, you'll know it quick enough when you start looking at the records and seeing that whoever was supposed to be doing something in a particular room using the touchscreen template that came up and they didn't do it, you just go to them and find out. Why aren't you following our procedures? So that's my new venture this year.
0: Hmm. Fascinating. Well, you know what? I, I appreciate your time. Um, if if somebody wanted to get a hold of you, uh, what would be the easiest way to do that? Um. Well, they <clears throat>
1: they can get me through my um, email address, which is hmq at bss dash consultant dot com, but also. Um, uh, my phone, my business phone is 978-857-4079. And um, I do get calls on a regular basis and emails through the writing and uh, lecturing and seminars and things like that that I give. Uh, and I really enjoy it because I continue to learn through that process. And uh, people say, well, when are you going to retire? And I think, gosh, i got too much to do right now. I, I am reducing my hours to enjoy... Uh, other things, but there's an awful lot of exciting stuff out there that um, you know I, I want to be part of.
0: Fantastic. Well, I appreciate your time uh, joining us here, um, and uh, uh, I, I just you know thank you. It's 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 been an honor to to be able to talk with you. And uh, you're I know you're an inspiration not only to me but to uh, a bunch of different engineers. Well, thank you. I, I uh,
1: enjoy what I'm doing, so it's fun.
0: All right, and we're back. Thanks again to Howie for uh, taking the time to talk with us, and uh, I really appreciate it. I think you know a lot of the things that that you know Howie said, and I really appreciate his perspective because you know he really does have that wide range. Uh, you know, from the design side to the contracting and maintenance side, he really is able to get that. Uh, clear field of vision uh, all across our industry. So that's the great perspective that Howie really brings in my mind. You know, I like to, you know, re- you know reiterate his, his 24-hour rule. You know, so often you find uh, that you get distracted by things uh, when you get back to the office, whether it's, you know, and, and he said, you know, pretty much field report you know, for uh, meeting minutes, but I'll extend that to field reports as well. You want to be able to capture everything immediately, uh, you know after you leave the field, you know give yourself a little extra time, you know do it early in the morning, you know whatever you have to do, but get that out of the way, get it back into the hands of people that need to review it uh, that need to see it. So everybody can have a chance to say, oh, yeah, that happened or no, that didn't happen. If you wait until right before the next meeting or the next site visit or, you know, even worse, even later than that when you're trying to wrap up a report, it, it just it doesn't come off. And if people see that and say, you know, why didn't I know about it, you know, when you saw it, you know, it really is something that, that, that you know, covers your back. It's a good habit to get into. And, you know, since this is the, the New Year's episode, uh, if you're actually listening to it uh, in order on time, um it's it's one of the things that you should probably resolve to do is is whatever documentation that you need to do that's time sensitive, uh whether it's documenting a meeting or documenting a site visit, do that right away. Use Howie's the twenty four hour rule and uh, get that accomplished. I also like his his different his different ways of ways of thinking. You know, especially the integration with the uh, uh the testing and balancing contractor. I think that's a that's a great concept. Um you know in in addition to uh in addition to the others so uh so that's some uh, excellent information again i'm going to post some of the uh some of the contact information that he gave uh on the blog so if you can go to uh, www. i actually really don't need to say that anymore i know but um if you go to buildingx.co uh that is the blog and you'll see that uh uh, the uh, the episode posted there, and in the show notes, I'm going to include some of the contact information for Howie, so you can get a hold of him. And that's uh, that is that. So uh, if you want to get a hold of me, you can always do that at matt at buildingx.co. That's one way. You can also follow me on Twitter at buildingx, or uh, you can just look me up and uh, connect with me on LinkedIn. So I think my public profile is Matt Nelson PE. And that is uh, my public profile. So, all right. Well, without further ado, we're going to uh, close this off, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, share it with a friend. If you have any comments or feedbacks or any things that you'd like to hear on future shows, let me know as well. I'd love to hear that. So thank you, each and every one of you, for listening. I really appreciate it. I hope this is beneficial to you, and uh, I certainly enjoy doing it from week to week. So, uh Enjoy, uh, enjoy the uh, upcoming week, and uh, we will talk to you later. And remember, know what you build and share it what you know.